So tonight I wanted to talk about the hindrances. And today, as I was reflecting on the hindrances, I kept thinking, the hindrances are really underrated. (laughs) That there can be this tendency to think that it's something that happens when you're a new meditator. It's something that happens at the beginning of a retreat. But when uh, you you get further down the path, they simply disappear. When I look in my own experience, it's not so. No, when I just reflect back on the month I had in Burma, I wish I could say it was hindrance-free, and it wasn't. And yet these hindrances were something that I learned from. And, you know, I don't think it's just that I'm a really bad meditator, that they keep coming around. Because when I hear stories of people in the time of the Buddha, some very great beings, very um, highly revered, Moggallana, who was the chief disciple of the Buddha. You know, before he became fully realized, the week before that, in his practice, he was struggling with sleepiness. And then there is Anuruddha. Anuruddha uh, was another disciple of the Buddha, and one day he went to Sariputta, who was the other of the chief disciples of the Buddha. And he went to Sariputta, and he said, you know, this is paraphrasing a bit, but I can get really concentrated. You know, that there's a lot of capacity in my mind for concentration. And my energy is unshakable. And still I am not fully realized. And Sariputta said to him that his um, confidence that he had in his capacity to become concentrated was simply conceit that his unshakable energy was a form of restlessness, and that his uh, thinking about not being fully realized was just a form of worry. And after Sariputta pointed this out to him, it said that he very quickly became fully realized. So, you know, some of you may have been sitting here for longer periods of time, practice getting more and more refined, and still finding these hindrances arise. Some of you have just arrived, and it may be that you're going through the throes of beginning a retreat where we might experience the hindrances in a gross form. And, wow, I'd love to say hindrances are um, just something that happens on retreat, but actually, if we look at our lives, how much suffering do we experience around what's called the five hindrances? In meditation practice, they do have a very specific way of being spoken about because when these five hindrances, which are desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt, when they arise and they're not recognized, they hinder the mind from clear seeing We don't have that capacity to see clearly because our vision becomes colored by these states. And they also keep the mind from deeply concentrating. There's agitation in the mind. The mind, you know, it doesn't stay focused. It doesn't, it isn't steady. It's run by, ruled by these states. But they are all states of mind that we will commonly experience in our lives. So they are really worth paying attention to as we meditate. Because this opens it up 
to the possibility of understanding, one, how it is that we keep identifying with these states, and then what happens as we experience them, as we identify or cease to identify. What are the thoughts that are there? Uh, What's the effect of these states? So tonight I'd like to just, you know, remind us of these states. Um, And it's really done, you know, just the word hindrance itself can have a connotation that, you know, oh, hindrances, bad, wrong. That's not going to be so helpful. But we speak about them so we can come to understand them. I was sitting in Burma once and had been sitting for quite a length of time. And my practice seemed to be really difficult at that time. And then I thought about some friends who had gone to India and they had gone to be with this master there. And it said that sometimes these people you know, would engage in conversation with this teacher and suddenly they'd laugh and they'd some, suddenly have got it. And as I was sitting there and thinking of this, I thought, oh, they've got it, I don't, and I want it. You know, and I just got more and more distressed, and uh, I was just thinking, you know, I must be doing this the hard way. This is the wrong way. This is the wrong path. And getting more and more anxious about it. And then suddenly I thought, okay, what's going on here? And I just looked into my own experience to see what was going on. And what did I see? Oh, there's desire. Oh, there's anger. Oh, there's sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. And then I saw them and I went, oh, (laughs) it's the hindrances. You know, this is the big problem I'm going to have for the rest of my life. I'm going to have to go into major therapy. And really, what I'm experiencing is just the hindrances. As soon as I saw it in that light, it depersonalized it. You know, it's just like different, different cloud patterns coming through. They all have different characteristics, different qualities, and they just needed to be recognized. It was such a different relationship than when I defined myself, my self-worth, how my practice was going by these different states that came through. Could just really see them for what they were. So I'll first run through the hindrances. The first hindrance is that of desire. So this is the wanting mind, the mind filled with craving, or clinging, identifying with our experience. We can experience desire through any of the sense doors, Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, different mind states that arise, different thoughts. During a retreat like this, we have a great opportunity to work with desire. Because in coming here, we've simplified our life. In simplifying our life, we might begin to see that uh, desires become more apparent. Because normally in our life, when we want something, we can go after it. 
if we get it, there might be a brief moment of satisfaction, and then it's gone, and then a new desire arises. And, you know, if we don't pay attention, we just keep pursuing that. It's how we live our life, chasing after these desires. But in that, there's something that is really dissatisfying because there's no lasting happiness in this. The happiness is always so fleeting. And what we're doing in those moments is failing to see the state of unsatisfactoriness out of which this is arising. How there's this sense of needing something, wanting something, in order to feel whole, in order to be fulfilled. And, you know, it often, this pattern will often follow us into retreat. And we sit here and we're still filled with wanting. You know, and at times it may be sense desire, sense pleasure, wanting things to be really pleasant. Sometimes it's wanting deeper concentration, wanting insight, having some expectation in practice, trying to create things. We can often see how desire is present even when we just sit down on the cushion. You know, wanting to be as comfortable as possible. And you know, I've watched myself when I've sat down on the cushion before, you know, you know, kind of get it quite right, you know, something under the knee, shawl, put it on, you know, um, just trying to navigate experience to be really pleasant. And within that, if we watch, there can be this element of craving, wanting, No, it's not that we need to sit down and sit really uncomfortably. There's nothing wrong in pleasant experience. But it's it's that craving that needs to be seen. Because it will drive our lives in really unwholesome ways if we don't recognize it. No, it comes about, we start living a life that's based upon fulfilling what I want, what I need. And the mind is not open when desire is present. If we pay attention, we see it's really quite a contracted state. I see this in uh, animals quite clearly. Uh, You know, there was this dog I was very close to. His name was Max. Uh, Max was a great teacher in many different ways. He was very, uh, he is a dog with a lot of loving kindness. But he also experiences very strong craving at times. And so, plain stick with Max. You know, you lift up the stick, his eyes fixate on it, you know, and his body begins to tremble. And you can watch his whole world disappears except for that stick. And when you watch him, when he's experiencing desire, it's not peaceful, it's not easeful. There's not a lot of happiness in it. You know, he's really acting out the state of desire. And you, this little body, I mean, he's got a big body, actually. This body quivering, trembling, you know, and it's so tight. He's wired, waiting for that stick to be thrown. It's painful. And this is what our minds become like when desire is present. And, you know, sometimes it is blatant. Sometimes it is strong. 
You know, probably as we're on retreat around food, that might be an area that we can really see the wild animal in there. You know, and sometimes it's just the wild animal getting to the dining hall. You know, watching what happens as you walk down the hallway, knowing that food is at the other end. You know, you can see it. You know, in the last walking period, you walked step by step. And suddenly you're charging down the hall. Or you're at least one step in front of yourself. You know, there's a sense of leaning forward. You, you know, you're already where you're going. And then, you know, we see desire as we see food, as we eat. You know, and I've seen so many times when desire is strong, it's my favorite foods there, whatever that might be. It constantly changes, but whatever it might be. And then, you know, taking a bite of that dish. You know, when desire is strong, I hardly taste it. And then, the, you know, it's like reaching for the next bite. And you're done the meal and suddenly, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you might have been planning halfway through to go and get more but you aren't even being present to this experience. We really begin to see how desire colors our vision. Now in our practice we might begin to see how how desire plays out by the wanting of these so-called good experiences, wanting the peak experiences. And sometimes the desire plays out in getting attached to intensity in our practice. And it can be, you know, it doesn't even have to be good experience anymore. We just want to know something's happening. And so we get attached to experience itself. And don't have the capacity to be present when things are more neutral. There's this attachment to the intensity. It's something that's bred in our lives. You know, we live in a world where we're constantly doing, encouraged to be doing. You know, if you ask somebody how they're doing, they're they're likely to, you know, say, "Oh, I'm really busy," but that's a sign of being good. You know, that 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 that's a good thing to be in life. We we give a lot of value to how much we can do in a day. And it keeps us hyped up into the state of grasping, grasping, grasping. Feel the pain of that. Feel how unsatisfactory it is. You know, you're on to the next thing before you've finished what you're doing. And it happens as we sit here. You know, you sit here and you plan your next walking period. You know, you're already in front of yourself. But when desire's there, just seeing it, looking into it, coming to know this state as it is. As we practice, we can also find that thoughts about the Dhamma itself become very tantalizing, very seductive. You know, I know my most profound Dhamma talks have been given sitting on the cushion. You've probably given a few yourself. You know, you sit there and you have some realization and then you just start proliferating about it. And it's really pleasant. You know, there's a lot of pleasure in it. And we become so great, so wise. It's so seductive. 
And, you know, we forget. And we, we might go into planning our next retreat. We might go into planning how we're going to share the Dhamma with our friends, how we're going to be a teacher, you know, how we're going to be so, such an enlightened being in our lives. And forgetting to be present. And we get lured into the seduction of desire. Winnie the Pooh had a very good understanding of this. You know, he said, um, he said, although eating honey is a very good thing to do, there's a moment before you eat it that is actually even better than when you do. You know, and that's the seduction of desire. We get enchanted. And we've really got to wake up to that moment of enchantment to see that. And then instead of being captivated by the object of desire, looking into the state of desire. And that's where we see the dissatisfaction, the sense of not being whole, not being fulfilled. But just seeing this without judging, without evaluating ourselves because of it, just knowing this is desire. This is what it feels like. So the first of the hindrances, desire, wanting, craving, clinging, attachment. The second of the hindrances is that of aversion. Aversion can have different forms. Sometimes it's really strong. Might be experienced as hatred. There can be within that hatred a sense of cruelty. It can be anger, ill will. It can also be experienced in the form of fear, where there's a sense of pulling away from experience. Boredom has within it an element of aversion. When we're bored, not connecting, not coming close to experience. There's a a distancing from experience. And this is the energy of aversion. It's recoiling. There's some unpleasant experience, whether it's a person, an experience, an event. And the mind doesn't want it, wants to get away wants to avoid, or wants to lash out, blame, annihilate. You know, two very different ways of, of responding with aversion, where one can pull back or lash out, but it's through that energy of not wanting. When aversion is present, life can feel very miserable. You know, an unending stream of events, experiences that we don't want. It's painful. And that's the gift of aversion, is that it is so painful. And so it becomes easier to see. Greed is harder to detect because there is this element of pleasure. There is a temporary happiness when we get what we want. But aversion it doesn't have a lot of pleasure in it. There can be some pleasure, 
especially when we're strongly identified. You know, that in moments of anger, when we might be blaming someone, there can be a real self-righteousness and a sense of puffing ourselves up. We feel better than someone else. You know, that um, the Buddha talked about how it could be murderously sweet. You know, so there can be something tantalizing about it. But just with a little bit of attention, we see how painful it is. We see the constriction of heart that happens. We experience that. We experience the suffering in it. Anger, aversion, keeps us caught in duality. There's this, the state of separation becomes highlighted. And we feel that. We feel how painful that is. You know, and sometimes the anger is directed towards ourselves, self-hatred, self-judgment, really painful. And sometimes it's towards others. It's really good to just notice when it's present. I had an experience only recently where there was an aversive tinge in the mind and noticing it periodically. And then suddenly I noticed the mind, I was reading this article in a newspaper and I was just looking for what I could be aversive to. You know, reading it, will this do? Will this do? You know, it was like really searching for that object that was going to be um, something to lash out at. So when we can recognize this flavor in the mind, it can help us from moving into stronger states of anger, where it really starts to solidify. Because it becomes like a wildfire that spreads really quickly if we don't pay attention. And before we know it, we're in such a state of rage. But if we catch it in the beginning, if we see it, then we don't have to feed it. We don't have to fuel it. We can really just begin to look at what anger is. What's the experience? What are the thoughts that fuel it? And what it feels like when it is fueled? And what it's like when we really just know it as it is. So the second hindrance, anger, in all its different forms, aversion, hatred, Fear can be disappointment, boredom. Just watching, you know, it can be so slight, that pulling away, distancing. You know, I think I mentioned it this morning or yesterday morning, in the noticing of thinking. If we're using noting, sometimes, you know, it just might be a slight edge. And it's like just trying to get rid of experience. Yep, I see you, but don't last, don't stay. Paying attention, because it can get very subtle at times.
these first two hindrances I have found to be very powerful, very strong. And I find that great patience is needed in working with them. I remember my innocence when I first began practice and really believed, believing that if I could just note something, be with it, it would go away and it would not return again. Of course, it wasn't true. You know, we really have to understand these states deeply. We have to understand, you know, what gives rise to these states, what fuels them, and what helps them to diminish. And this is what we learn through our practice. We really learn that recognition is important, to be able to recognize them in their arising, to be able to accept them, to if, as soon as we start fighting with them, you know, it gives them fuel. But when we can accept them, it allows us to see them. And it's in this scene that the understanding comes, that the wisdom comes. And then we begin to see that by continuity of mindfulness, they start to abate. They start to lose their grip. We're no longer identifying. We're not so caught in them. We're not defining ourselves by them. And they lose their power. But we will need patience. We can't expect that just in the seeing of them, they'll be gone. We really have to understand them deeply. And this is how they become uprooted. So noticing, even in their arising, if there's a you know, sense to get rid of them, rather than, what can I understand here? What can I learn here? This brings about an interest and a balance in the mind and acceptance, because this is what we can work with. The third of the hindrances is that of sloth and torpor. So this can be experienced in the form of sleepiness, dullness, fogginess, laziness, apathy, where there's a lack of energy or resolve in the heart, a mental inertia. When sloth and torpor is present, we don't have the capacity to tolerate difficulties. I mean, if you find, <clears throat> excuse me, by the end of the day you're getting tired, you know, in that last sitting, it becomes really difficult to be with pain. We can't hold the pain. You know, if aversion arises, it just becomes intolerable. You know, there's, there's not that same energy present to be with the experience. <clears throat> There's uh, an animal in Australia called the koala. And the koala looks like a little miniature bear. It's not actually from the bear family. But it, to me, is an animal in which one can really see this uh, quality of sloth and torpor. 
it, you know, I had heard it was a very lazy animal. And it's actually lazy because it eats uh, eucalyptus leaves, which have a sedating effect. So it's part of its diet. <laughs> but, you know, I'd heard that it was, a, you know, quite a slothful animal. And then one time I was doing a retreat, and I saw a koala. And this is rare to see a koala, and they're very reclusive. But I was watching this koala climbing this tree. And, you know, it put one arm up, pulled itself up, put another arm up, pulled itself up. It put another arm up and went, <laughs> and, you know, when I saw that, I thought, hmm, this is how I do my practice sometimes. <laughs> you know, there, one breath, another breath, and <laughs> sleep. <laughs> or, you know, have the energy for one few moments, and then, ah, oh, loss of energy, <laughs> sorry. You know, so this, this can really happen in our practice. And it is common at the beginning of a retreat. And it, you know, it comes out of the conditions of our life. We're really busy, we arrive here, and tiredness, tiredness we haven't been able to feel, arises. And you know, so it's something that we just have to work with, be with. Um, you know, I found it really helpful at the beginning of a retreat not to fight it. And that didn't mean that every time I felt sleepy I went to bed, um, which sometimes that can be a skillful means, but just to really allow it to be there and to just turn up as best I can, you know, and to just keep coming back when I have the option. And, you know, if I, if I didn't get into this stance of resistance trying to force myself through it, it tended to just diminish. Sometimes we find it coming on at the beginning of a retreat because we don't have the same degree of stimulus that we have in our lives. And it's really important to see this because in our lives we so depend on experience to be awake. I know that's how it was early in my life. You know, I actually got into outdoor activities, outdoor sports, you know, climbing mountains, hanging off the edge of a cliff just so I could feel alive finding it hard to be awake, alert, when there wasn't big things happening. And so when we come to retreat, you know, and suddenly there's not all these different things to do, and there's just this breath, you know, it, you know, yeah, ow, you know, it's not got that same edge of excitement. And so we just start to fall asleep until we really pay attention. So, you know, it calls on us to to find a way to turn up when things are not quite so exciting. We'll also find that sleepiness arises uh, when our concentration starts to deepen and it's not balanced with energy. You know, so you've been through one level of sleepiness, you arrived and you were tired and that seems to be dissipating and finally you feel like you can turn up a little bit more and so you start turning up for the breath. You know, maybe coming back breath after breath. And then um, the concentration starts to take hold but there isn't a lot of energy and not a lot of vitality, not a lot of interest yet. And so we start entering into what's called sinking mind. And sinking mind, you know, um, can be at times a pleasant state. You know, I used to find that I could sit down and kind of go into this pleasant state, and then sitting, I really didn't have a clue what happened. 
No, there's no, that quality of investigation isn't alive. And so it's kind of a dull state. Um, it can get dreamy at times. And, you know, yet there can be a sense of presence, but not a lot of clarity. It's really helped by just noticing when this is happening. And if we can just bring in, even being interested in the dullness. And I think that's something that's really important to know. Because when dullness is there, we often think we need clarity to practice. But when a dullness is there, actually the mind is knowing that. And then if we have an interest in that, that's all, really all that's needed. You don't need a different experience. Right there, the mind can come back into balance. So, you know, when you start to have a sense that, yes, there is starting to connect with experience, but there, you know, it's dull, it's heavy, it's thick, it's syrupy. Just take an interest in what's happening. You know, sometimes a little bit preciser attention, but it can just be that waver of interest. You know, I, I mentioned this morning, interest lights up the mind. And that's all that's needed. A type of sloth and torpor that we need to be watchful of is where there's an apathy, a complacency, where we become comfortable, complacent in our practice. And I think in the type of retreat we do here, we need to watch for this because we can set up a really comfortable practice. You know, where we might practice outside when it's warm, when the birds are singing, when the wind is just gently blowing. You know, sometimes that's really conducive and helpful. But, you know, when that's where we need to go to practice, and then it gets a little bit chilly, and, oh, we'll go and practice in the comfort of our room. Or we walk where it's most pleasant experience. Or, you know, the going gets rough. Oh, I'll just have a little cup of tea here. I can be mindful as I do that. Which, in truth, you can. And there's nothing wrong with a cup of tea. But, you know, it's this mind that is not challenging itself. That, you know, it's not looking into the desire when it's arising. When, or, you know... Um, It's not facing the challenges and instead just going into cruise. And you know, sometimes it may even be that we just find a period of time that we sit, that we're comfortable, and then we get up before there's any discomfort. You know, not, not even wanting to let the possibility of aversion arise. So just noticing if your practice is in a way to just to try to keep yourself comfortable. And it's something only you will know. Sometimes in the midst of a long retreat, we can start to take for granted this time. As if I mean, it can, it can feel like we'll be here forever, you know, that we have plenty of time. 
And it's not that we need to rush, we need to hurry. Because there's nothing to rush for, nothing to hurry for. But we do need to wake up to this moment. And we never know when conditions will change, when this opportunity will be gone, whether it's practicing here, whether it's this life. And yet, so often we take it for granted. And that's a type of complacency. So sometimes reflection is helpful. Reflection on impermanence. Reflection on the preciousness of this human life. Reflection on the preciousness of this opportunity for practice. So sleepiness comes in different forms, sloth and torpor. And, you know, it too has plagued meditators for very long periods of time. People find different ways of working with it. You know, there's skillful means for when it's overwhelming. Uh, I once heard about a woman who was experiencing a lot of sleepiness, and she went and sat right in front of a tree. And every time she nodded, the tree hit her and she woke up. Hogan-san, the Zen master, the Zen master who gave me my name, he talked about working with sleepiness, and he was uh, doing you know, a seven-day retreat, and he was really pushing himself in some way, trying to sit through the night, and he kept falling asleep, and he got really frustrated with that. So he thought, okay, I'm going to go and sit on the roof of the monastery, the roof of the temple. The temple had a very peaked roof, and he was sitting on the beam across the top. It was a foot wide. And he thought, the fear of falling will surely keep me awake. And then he went on to say, and in the morning when I woke up, I was so surprised. He was stretched out on the beam. <laughs> so don't be discouraged by it. You know, it happens. Moggallana, that's what he was working with the week before. Full liberation, complete understanding. We can use skillful means when it's helpful. You know, there's many different things that are prescribed. You know, sitting with the eyes open. I find raising the eyes, if my eyes are, are pointed downwards, it's too close to um, sleep. But if they're raised upwards, you know, and sometimes to keep the energy needed to keep the eyes open, it's intense. It'll keep you awake. Um, standing. Don't forget about standing meditation. I don't know why we shy away from it so often. And, you know, it's one of the postures. It's a valid form of practice. Just stand instead of sitting if it's really overwhelming. But then, you know, when mindfulness starts to build, look into what's happening here. Look into sloth and torpor. See what it is. You know, sometimes there's thoughts in the mind that keep feeding it. No, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. We listen to that over and over again. What does it do? Put us to sleep. What happens when we identify? I remember sitting in a retreat. It was so funny. I had a lot of energy going at nighttime. And this, this one night I'm sitting in my room. I felt really awake. No problem. And then there was just the thought, well, why don't you just lean against the wall for a minute? You know? And as 
the body touched the wall, I fell asleep. It was so instantaneous. You know, and it can happen in just a moment of identifying with a thought that guides us down the path to our bed. You know, many of you are sitting in your room. Boy, do you learn about sleepiness there. You know, you (laughs) get a little sleepiness and it's just so easy to crawl into that bed. Just for a minute. And then half hour later you wake up. Hour later. Some people reported three hours later. You know, and it, it happens. A skillful means, you know, if we keep finding ourselves in bed, is to sit in the hall. You know, um, we just learn how to work with this state. So the fourth hindrance, it's that of restlessness. So restlessness can come in the body, where there's a lot of energy, it's really hard to sit still. You know, sometimes you're sitting and it's like, you just feel like you, there's so much energy in the body, you just want to jump up and run out of the room. Or you're sitting and the body does literally explode, you know, an arm flings, a leg flings, it, you know, it jumping all around. You know, a lot of energy in the body. And it's hard to be with. And, you know, restlessness in the mind. You know, it's, the mind is so jumpy. It can't land on an object. It's moving from object to object to object. And that, that oftentimes is changing experiences in practice. But with restlessness, there's this real edginess to it. And not really connecting before something else. It's just got a real edge to it. And often with restlessness, you know, if it's in the mind, uh, there can be obsessive planning. You know, you might sit here just planning what you're going to do next, planning what you're going to wear tomorrow, um, planning anything, or planning what you're going to do at the end of the retreat. You only arrive, but, you know, you have to plan your departure, and that might be six months away. It just becomes obsessive. Sometimes this restlessness takes the form of guilt. You know, as we sit, it's not uncommon that many different memories will pop up. And if we're not paying attention to what arises in the mind, often we'll find a lot of guilt arises. And if we're not mindful of that, it becomes a very lacerating state, very debilitating. But it's totally different if we pay attention. You know, some memory arises, you know, maybe there was a moment of regret. It was something that was unskillful. But if we let ourselves feel that, pay attention, we can forgive, let go, move on. But when we don't, it goes into this cycle of guilt. You idiot, you stupid idiot, you should have never done that, you're a horrible person. And we end up feeling so bad. You know, and this is just another way restlessness will play out. One common way that we experience restlessness as we sit here, because we live in a time where we hear so many different instructions for practice, so many different skillful means, we sit down and we think, okay, I'm just going to be with the breath. 
and we start to be with the breath. And then, you know, something happens and you think, oh, no, I think actually sp- I should be really spacious right now. I think I'll just open to uh, allowing everything to be. And then um, something else happens and we remember that, oh, maybe anger arises and we think, oh, no, I think actually right now it would be more appropriate to do metta practice. We can't, we, you know, we keep looking for, you know, a, a way to practice and we can't settle. You know, and sometimes that just lets me know, oh, restlessness is here. And then, you know, once restlessness is detected, it's much easier to be with. Before it's detected, it's running the show. And it, you know, leads to, you know, a sitting where you can't, you can't sit still, you're trying to find the right posture, um, can't find the right practice. But when you just see, oh, restlessness. And then, you know, start to look at what the state of restlessness is. Have an interest in it. You know, interest does so much. It helps so much. You know, we start to take an interest. The mind gains stability. And rest, <coughs> excuse me, restlessness really arises when there's not enough concentration. You know, the, the, the energy isn't balanced with concentration. And so, you know, when the mind starts to connect more with experience, concentration starts to deepen, and we can see things again. We can be with the experience. So recognition is really important in working with restlessness. And then, you know, there's two very different ways. You know, if we can, to just look right into the state itself. And, you know, sometimes it just feels too much. And so we might need to balance it by bringing in more concentration. And so it could be really working with an anchor, working with the breath. And the mind gets restless, and we just come back, and we do it over and over and over again, not worrying that the mind keeps jumping away. Because as we keep connecting, coming back, it starts to get more stable. The concentration starts to deepen. The energy gets balanced. And sometimes with restlessness, that's too much. We can't do it. The mind needs a wide paddock. And with that, we just find touchstones within the restlessness. Really touching into being present with the energy, the movement of the mind, just observing the mind jumping, jumping. Not trying to stop it, not trying to change it, but noticing that movement. Being present to that. Being with the observing mind, the touchstone into the experience of restlessness. So that's the fourth hindrance, restlessness, which can be physical, mental, can be the obsessive planning mind, can be states of guilt, worry. The last of the hindrances is that of doubt. Doubt can be really strong in practice, and when it's present, it can really cripple our practice, stop our practice. We might experience doubt in the form of, I can't do this, I'm not good enough, This isn't the right practice. This teacher isn't teaching right. 
you know, we start stepping back from our experience. We, you know, it's like being an armchair meditator. Um, and, you know, we start having all these views and opinions about how things are or should be. And it really distances us. It's very painful. It's very unpleasant. It's very unsatisfactory. It's confusing. <clears throat> I went to my first retreat with Sayada Upandita. I had heard that he was a very good meditation teacher, a master of meditation, really looking forward to going and practicing with him. I went and I began the retreat, which I was there for a month, and this was the first night of the retreat. Um, He started giving meditation instructions, and at this point I'd been meditating for years in my life. And I heard his instructions, and I thought, that's not meditation. He's not teaching meditation. And, you know, it became impossible. I started, uh, you know, I listened to that, and I actually felt like the hair on the back of my neck was standing on end. You know, and my, my first reaction was, get me out of here. This isn't, you know, this isn't the right place for me. But you know, I thought, okay. You know, I trusted some of the people who would said that he was a really good teacher. And I thought, okay, I'm going to hang in until my first interview. And the next day, there was no interviews. I tried to do the practice. was really struggling with it. And then uh, the next day, I had my interview with him. And I went in, and you know, if you've ever heard of Sayada Upandita, he has a very precise form that he wants to hear about your practice. And he doesn't want much variation from that. So you describe the rising of the abdomen, describe the falling of the abdomen. Well, you know, I hadn't even been able to connect with the breath. What am I going to say about it? And so, you know, I start trying to describe what's going on, and you know, I'm, he can see I'm really struggling. And, you know, it's like, oh, I'm really uncomfortable. And then finally he said, could it be that you doubt that this practice is for you? And he said that, and I went, yes! (laughs) And, you know, I really literally jumped up out of my seat. I hadn't named it. He named it. And it was such a relief. You know, it was, yes, that's my experience. (laughs) And then he said, well, you know, just treat this as a scientific experiment. You don't have to believe this. You know, and there I was in this monastic setting, and it was my first time around monastics. I was just like, well, you know, I'm not here to be a Buddhist. I just want to be free. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was feeling like I had to take on everything. But as soon as I could just treat this practice as an experiment, you know, and so then I just took his instructions. I followed them. I saw where it confronted my own ideas, my own beliefs about what practice was. And these beliefs had come from people, other teachers. They weren't grounded in my own experience. And they were challenged. You know, I, I think I described that retreat as having open brain surgery. You know, it was really confronting. But, you know, from the place of experimentation, I could take this month to look. And I thought, okay, if at the end of the month this doesn't work for you, you can let it go. You don't have to live the rest of your life. And, you know, at first it was sort of this sense, oh, this is going to be a way of life and, you know, I can't function within it. But it was, that was nothing. No, 
it was just skillful means that were being offered, and if they were helpful, I could use them, and if they don't, I could let them go. But our conditioning is strong. So if in the first instance of using a skillful means it doesn't help, you know, it can be easy to say, oh, not good enough. You know, it takes time. We need patience. We have to work with things for a while to really reap the benefit of it. And then we can say. In working with doubt, I found it really helpful to recognize the thoughts, because when we're not recognizing, we're believing those thoughts. They're a statement of how it's true, of what the truth is. And it's not. It's just a thought. If you can recognize it as a thought, that's really helpful. But to, when you recognize that, oh, that's that, the voice of doubt, then rather than believing what the doubt is saying, drop into the experience right now, right here. Because when we're really with the experience, there's no room for doubt. We're knowing what's happening. There's no place for doubt to arise. But doubt will happen when the mindfulness starts to come off. And then doubt surfaces again. See it? We come back. Connect again. And we, you, know, you don't have to connect with anything other than what your experience is. Because doubt is often saying, oh, you know, you're getting brainwashed here, you're getting, you know, you're, it's saying something. But learning to just be with our experience. So these hindrances, they come one at a time, they come together. They come in so many different varieties. Just when you think you're able to work with greed in one form, a new form of greed comes. We might find that you know, through our habituated patterns in life, we're more prone to one type of the hindrances, we might find that we relish in all of them. It doesn't matter. Now these hindrances, they're our teachers. We can really begin to see where we get caught, identified. We can really come to understand what's happening. And we can see these states of mind in just their nature, knowing the qualities, seeing that they're born out of certain conditions. As those conditions change, they disappear. We might see them in blatant forms. We might see them very subtly. No matter how long you've been practicing, how many years of practice, how many weeks or months you may have been here, we can always check. Because they have this way of just slipping in under the radar. You know, they can be so close to our nose that we just don't see them. In my last month of practice, there was a couple of times when I was simply awed to discover a hindrance. You know? Whoa! Look at that! It was amazing. 
I'd like to close tonight with a poem that I wrote one time at the end of a retreat. Um, seems to be something I do at the very end of retreat to kind of look back and uh, put some words to something of my experience. And I wrote this at the end of a retreat where I had for six weeks been working with sleepiness. It was a long six weeks. You know, and it was pretty strong. You know, I just found myself, I was actually sitting in this very hall. It was the teacher's retreat that opened (laughs) this center. I don't know what kind of a start I was off to, but here I was sitting and experiencing so much sleepiness. You know, I was just bobbing and weaving. And, you know, sometimes it was so strong that I would bob really severely and then I would startle my neighbors. And <laughs> it was embarrassing because my neighbors were all teachers. <laughs> I thought, oh my God, they're not going to let me teach here. <laughs> but anyhow, it, it was pretty strong. But, you know, in working with sleepiness, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about ideas. I learned a lot of different patterns in the mind. And I learned what happens when you stay steady with these mind states. That, you know, what the different qualities that we are cultivating as we work with them. You know, cultivating patience, cultivating loving kindness, compassion. Because it's not easy. You know, if day after day you're sitting here in the throes of aversion, wow, that's suffering. You know, as we sit here, we, t- we touch into our deepest wounding. And it's not easy to be with. So, you know, we need patience. We need loving kindness. We need compassion. And I also began to notice how there was this quality of resolve. You know, I just sat. So what? There's sleepiness. So so what? I'm scaring my neighbors. (laughs) So what? So what? It's unpleasant. What can I learn from it? And so... This is a poem that I wrote at the end of it. And, you know, when sleepiness is there, you find all the hindrances, too. So It was called Resolve of the Heart. Seeing the face of fear, I quiver and I quake. I become so small, two steps backwards, and still I walk on. The torment of the judging mind, you or me, it's the thought that divides. There is so much disdain. And still, I walk on. Laziness prevails. It clouds my vision. Sometimes I think that my head, that my bed is nibbana. And still, I walk on. The unending sleepiness that defies impermanence. The bashing from its waves. Foggy, heavy, oppressive. And still, I walk on. Guilt self-hatred. They are friends that gang up, that lacerate and pierce, and I'm left in the muck. And still I walk on. Walk on. Walk on. It's that whisper in my ear. It's that longing in my heart. It's that shiver of unspeakable peace. And so I walk on. So let's just sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.